Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? Well, I'd be fine if I could tell time. <laughs> I have time problems these days. <laughs> We're, are we struggling with, um, do we need to go I'm back? I'm struggling seasonally, I think, would oh. be a good way to put it. Not so much with like, you know, hours on the clock, but so much with seasons. So we, we need to go back to, you know, maybe, you know, kindergarten or first grade where we where were we learning learn the seasons, seasons and, and we learned to put, we learned to put <laughs> podcast episodes out in order of the seasons. Yes, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay. So, so listeners. listeners. Yeah. Okay. Go uh, ahead, Augie. So um, uh, you are about ready. You're about to uh, listen to um, or read the transcript for a podcast episode that we recorded um, a couple of months ago. And our intention was to have uh, a summer of favorites um, where each episode would uh, be a discussion of some of our favorite things related to government and politics. Um, and they weren't our normal fare of government documents or political events. Yeah, or facts. They weren't facts. <laughs> Okay. They were pretty much fact-free in most instances in terms of how but, the government runs or yeah. based in government documents, which is generally what we do. Yes. And our intention was to record a number of these episodes and then release them during the summer. Um, uh, and for a get-to-know-you kind of summer. This yeah. sort of our summer of favorites so that you could get to know us. Yeah. A little I mean, more personally of what we think of when we think of favorites. Yes. And, but and like all good plans. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what is it? The best laid plans of mice and men often go astray, right? Yeah. And in this instance, one of us is a man and one of us is a mouse. <laughs> what is that? Is, uh, uh, is that a... I didn't want to take away your manhood by saying we were mice. We're both mice. Okay. The the quote, though, is from Dickens, right? Right. Okay. Um, anyways, so <laughs> we were about, you know, we recorded these episodes. Our intention was to go ahead and release them during the summer. However, um, we received a bunch of emails, okay, from faithful listeners um, who wanted to know um, if or and or when we were going to have podcast episodes about the recently completed Supreme Court term that finished up the last week of June. The recently non-controversial, completely boring, nothing else happened in, in, in the whole thing, U.S. Supreme Court yes. term. That's so, the one you mean, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Because, <laughs> you know, the United States Supreme yeah. Court. Several and, of our readers slash listeners were on fire, basically. They were yes. like, oh, my gosh, you have to address this. Yes. So, so. what we did, listeners, is um, we scrapped our summer of favorites, um, but we didn't scrap it. We just delayed release of those episodes. So what follows is one of those episodes. Thank you. For your patience for us with our timing and once um, we're through our fall of favorites yes 
we'll we, come back with regularly scheduled episodes of normalness. Yes, where we focus on government documents, government processes, okay, things in the news, okay. Yep. Um, but uh, we facts and uh, figures and all the things that are true. Yes. Instead of all the things that are our opinions, which may or may not be <laughs> <That's> true. true. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Augie. Thank you, Neil. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. Um, and, Can I just uh, say you're my favorite? Why? You're just my oh, favorite. Oh, yeah. Because we're... <laughs> I was just like, well, hey, thanks, Nia. That, that, that <laughs> rare moment of sentimentality. And then it dawned on me, um, uh, 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 you actually did that, because we are starting our summer of favorites. Okay. Yes. yes. And, and, and this and, time we're starting with West Wing. We're, why would we not start with West Wing? The reality of the two of us is that we t we already talked about probably almost all the episodes <laughs> at one point or another. But yes. it, it's clearly a favorite of ours. And but you have actually a real reason why people would watch political television. Yeah. Um and uh Right. It's not just because it's fun and cool. Yeah. It, 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 and again, you know, Nia and I are definitely the product uh, of an American generation weaned on television. <laughs> um, oh, yes. I mean, I mean, both of us went to school and we would come home and, and then we would watch TV. Um, right. But uh, focusing on politics in TV shows or movies or songs is part of um, um, uh, a body of literature that political scientists have developed over the years um, known as uh, political socialization. How do people get socialized to think about politics? Um, and, um, uh, and media is one of those agents of socialization. You know, it's how our beliefs and values get shaped, um, whether it be about politics or how we think about other people, um, et cetera, et cetera. And um, one of the most prominent political socialization agents is the media, uh, particularly um, television, movies, books, and music. So if you think about Nia, how you and I uh, came to maturity in regards to politics, one of the most influential TV shows for us, and I, if I dare say, our generation, was a TV show called The West Wing, which appeared on NBC for seven years from September of 1999 through May of 2006. And Listeners, if you're thinking, but they're too old for 1999 to have been effective on them or affecting them. Yeah. Um, I would like to put out there that I think that part of what happens with socialization is, is that you have to come to it at the right time in your life for it to sink in and take hold. Like, I was not politically active when I was 18, 19, 20. I, okay, 
I was politically active in the sense that if a cute boy invited me to a political thing, <laughs> I went. <laughs> but but I wasn't I wasn't I was not living an adult view of politics at that point. By the time you get to 2000, and I'm going to, this is going to show my age, and this is just, sorry, folks, this is just how it is. In 1999, I was 22 years old, right? 32 years old, 32 years old, my bad, sorry, 32 years old, which is when I had established my career, I had started to settle in, and issues started to really mean stuff to me, because taxes and homeownership and all of those things that are built into the political system and into the the way that you perceive who should be president all that stuff starts to really take hold at that age yeah yeah and i think that's why this particular show um and for me hold of me in that time for me nia i was more probably politically active or aware than most young people. So, you know, in high school, I actually, you know, did volunteer work for political campaigns. Um, and, you know, I went to undergrad and, and my master's, you know, both were in political science. But, you know, when you're talking about the late 1990s, the early part of this millennium, um, Again, you know, <clears throat> I just gone through some rough patches in my life and I was teaching and I was figure, trying to figure out ways to go ahead and expose my students to stuff that I was teaching in my classes that were perhaps more palatable to them. <laughs> um, and all of a sudden there's this TV show and it was smart. And it was written well. And even if you didn't agree with the politics of the main characters, it was written so well and had a kind of sort of knowledge about the American political system that I was just like, this is fun. Right. And again, right. I know for many of our listeners, my sense of, you know, my definition of fun might be different. But I mean, it, again, one of the great things about the West Wing um, was that it was written so well. And, and acted so well. I mean, it was yeah. in part that ensemble cast really worked well together. Yeah. Um, we should note for listeners who are not aware, Aaron Sorkin was um, a drug addict and struggled uh, yes. a lot of while writing West Wing and Sport Night, a show that had come before that. Um, he struggled a lot with that. Uh, and the actors had to learn lines very quickly sometimes because he was writing right up to the deadline of filming, uh, changing things and moving things around and stuff like that. So this was a talented group of people who worked together. Um, that is not to say he did not do good work because clearly he did, at least in our opinion. But he was also a troubled soul. Yeah, West at, at that time in his life, he had uh, when he caught at the airport with mushrooms. Yes, like bringing in mushrooms to LAX, like just making unfortunate life choices. Okay, so uh, Nia met, uh, mentioned the founder of the show, uh, Aaron Sorkin, and Sorkin. Um, 
uh, kind of sort of was a big name in Hollywood in part because before he came up with the idea of the West Wing, um, he did a, a, a previous show called Sports Night, which was a kind of sort of fictitious representation of what was then the new um, uh, um, uh, company known as ESPN. It was their sports center. It was a yeah. takeoff of their yeah. sports center. And Aaron Sorkin's a brilliant writer. I mean, he, he goes on to do the social network. He goes on to do and before And before Sports Night in West Wing, he was uh, the screenwriter for A Few Good Men. Oh, that's right. And I believe he was also the screenwriter for Nia, one of your favorite um, political movies, uh, The American President, starring Michael Douglas. Oh. Okay. Okay. So he has, so, so there's established chops there. And then the actors in the, in the show have all become, I think many of them have become uh, sort of um, Hollywood standard bearers in terms of actors, Alice and Janney. Uh, uh, okay, Martin so the, Sheen, of course. Um, so the basic plot of the show was it centered on a fictional Jed Bartlett presidential administration. And Bartlett was a former Democratic governor from the state of New Hampshire, right? And originally the show was pitched to NBC as focusing on um, the main speechwriter. Uh, an actor played by um, uh, Richard Schiff. Rob Lowe. No, Rob, oh, Rob Lowe. Lowe. Yeah, Rob Lowe. But when they started filming it, okay, um, they quickly came to the conclusion that it should focus on the presidential administration, right? Right. Um, that it should and focus Martin on. Sheen, I think, was only supposed to be in a couple of episodes and he. Yeah, okay. Um, and Martin Sheen was uh, a well-known television and movie actor. Apocalypse Now. Okay, Apocalypse Now. Um, I mean, if you watch any um, uh, uh, TV series from the late 60s, early 1970s. <laughs> he was I mean, probably he, he, at least a guest yeah, star. I mean, he, yeah, he showed up as a, a guest star in so many different shows, right? But you mentioned um, uh, Allison Janey. Uh, Allison, uh, excuse me, Janney, um, was the press secretary. Um, 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 and then you had Richard Schiff, who played Toby, um, who was uh, the director of communications. Um, you had uh, Bradley, what's his last name? Um, uh, wait, 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 ah, I'll look it up. Whitford, thank you. Yeah. I was going to say Whitford. Whitford. That's not right. Okay, uh, 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 Brad Whitford, um, um, uh, uh, who plays Josh, who's the deputy deputy chief of staff. The chief of staff was played by the well known character actor John Spencer. Okay, um, Mrs. Bartlett was played by uh, uh, Sucker Channing. Yeah, the uh, another great female actress, right? Comparable actress, right? Okay. From from stage as well as film. Yes. Uh, Charlie. Uh, Charlie oh, Young yeah. is played by Dulé Hill, who goes on to be in Psycho for people who 
Yes. Psych. Sorry, psych. Right. Not psycho. Psych. Yes. Right. Psych. On the USA uh, Network. Yes. Modern or younger folk might know him from that. Um, Janelle Maloney plays Donna Moss, who is Josh's uh, secretary, and then becomes love interest by the end of the series. And okay. she has actually the most important part in the show, I would argue. Because, uh, because she's the everyman. And she a lot knows of things so get little, explained to her. She knows so little about politics when she right. goes to the first work for the Bartlett campaign. That it's Sorkin explaining to us. She asks the questions that many of us would go ahead and ask. Right. right? So that's <laughs> right. where we get, that's her, I, I, in some ways I would argue she's the most important character in the entire, in the entire show. But can we talk about our favorite episodes? Can we talk, can we talk? Well, before we get to our favorite episodes, there is one other character that should not go um, unrecognized, okay? Who have I missed? Uh-huh. Who have I missed? Mrs. Bladingham, okay, who plays the secretary to President Bartlett. Oh, okay. and she's highly influential. Um, she was with him when he was governor. Okay, and she, you know, is the infamous gatekeeper, okay, um, for any bureaucratic office, right? Um, she was just absolutely phenomenal, okay? Well, and she also kind of, in the first episode, it, so the first episode of the show gives us a long shot following Leo as he's walking to his office through yes. the White House, right? Yes. And he interacts with the guard. He interacts with all the the staffers that are hanging around. He and he walks through the Oval because the chief of staff's office is next to the Oval. He walks through the Oval, and he is explaining something to Mrs. Landingham, and he calls the president a klutz, and she says, "Not in this room, sir. You can call him any, you know, like." Yes. Because she sets the bar at, he is the president, and you can insult him anywhere else, but not in the Oval Office. <laughs> That's right. You just can't. Okay. And um, Sorry. And in the first episode, the president is injured because he is riding a bike lent to him by Leo, and he comes to, and I quote, a sudden arboreal stop, yeah. um, <laughs> which means yeah. he rides the bike into a tree. Uh, and and that's what CJ asks him, what am I supposed to say to the press? And he says, I don't know. Tell them that the president came to a sudden arboreal stop, <laughs> which sets the tone. But it's a long shot that's filmed in one, one take, one go. And that yes. seems to be the way the West Wing, they filmed a lot of long shot takes where they would follow people through rooms and the actors would divide and then come back together and is an interesting way of filming but that's a, it's a wonderful setup for us to that this show is going to be both humorous but also serious right what, what do you say when the president has a butt like how do you portray that because when you think about it if the president is injured in some way there is going to be immediate from the other side well is he competent to serve is he able to did he get a concussion when he hit the tree you know blah 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 there's all this and you don't want that to be the story of the day mm -hmm. if you are the administration you don't want didn't 
didn't President Biden fall down at some point relatively recently? He just he just tripped over something. Well, or think about, for instance, you know, or Gerald Ford, who took a beating on that for yeah years. Yeah, or you know, the fact that in, in some ways, you know, some of the uh, writers for the show had worked in the Clinton administration. Right. Okay. In one of the more famous um, interactions between President Clinton. And somebody in the uh, Oval Office was between President Clinton and a, a, a then federal judge who he was considering nominating to the Supreme Court, uh, Stephen Breyer, okay, um, who was uh, up for consideration for the Supreme Court position that went to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Gin, uh, Breyer, the week before his interview with President Clinton, um, had a bicycle accident. He, you know, ran into a tree. Right. And he showed up to the interview um, somewhat um, less than on his top game because he was, taking pain, yeah, he was taking pain meds. Right. Um, and he didn't interview very well. And right? there is an episode where Bartlett yes, okay. is on pain meds. Is, is on pain meds. Right. It's interesting. OK. OK. But nevertheless, uh, it, what follows the rest of this podcast episode is me and I talking about. Um, and, and, and we limited ourselves to just two episodes, right? And side note, spoilers. We yes. should have said that at the very beginning of this, and yes. we do that at the beginning of every other episode. Sorry, we forgot. There are herein lies spoilers. If you've yes. seen it, turn off this episode. Go watch all of the West Wing. Yes, it's only what. 22 oh. episodes per year for seven years. I mean, come on. Yes. Go binge watch it all and then come back and listen to this episode because yes. it, we don't want to ruin it for you if you haven't watched it. Um, but yeah, there's about to be spoilers. And and we limited ourselves to two episodes each. Which was horrible. It, it because... was good. Yeah, I, I probably spent as much time <laughs> trying Winnowing to... Winnowing down a list. <laughs> okay. As yeah. I have on any research notes that I prepare for these podcast episodes, right? I mean, this was extremely difficult, right? But Nia, let's lead off with your two favorite episodes. Um, so my I cheated because <laughs> that's what I do. Um, I cheated by getting two episodes for one. Yes, uh, because I actually have three episodes technically. <laughs> yes, um, the. The, they're called the big block of cheese episodes yeah and so the way they start is is leo coming in and saying is it jefferson who had the big block of cheese? oh no jefferson? it was andrew jackson jackson andrew thank jackson. you jackson andrew jackson had a big block of cheese and invited anyone who wanted to come and eat blah 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 or he goes into this big long speech and they hate big block of cheese day because big block of cheese day means people who do not normally get access to the White House staff yes. get it on Big Block of Cheese Day. And these are usually very small, very narrow special interest groups who would not normally carry enough weight, clout, right, yes, yeah. Into the, to get uh, time with the staffers. So there's two episodes, Crackpots and These Women, which is season one, episode five, and Somebody's Going to Emergency, Somebody's Going to Jail, yes. um, which is, by the way, a, 
take off of an Eagles song, but or Don Henley song. Don um, Henley song, yes. Even to episode 16. But they are uh, special interest. And in, in one of them, <laughs> um, there is the Peters projection. So for people who don't know the Peters projection, so what you see on a globe or on an atlas, in an atlas is the Mercator projection of the planet. Yes. The Mercator drawing helps people figure out which way they need to get in their boat and go in order so they don't end up in the Caribbean thinking it's the Indies, Columbus, right? We're looking. Yeah. So, I mean, so they you don't get lost. It's basically so you don't get lost. But yeah. So, you know, you know, you don't end up in Greenland hoping that you're going to go ahead and, you know, end up in the Bahamas, right? right. Okay. Right. That's you what know, the Mercator does for you. And yes, and the thing about the Mercator map is that it's it is wrong in size. Yes, it has the United States and Africa as the same size. So if you grow up with that map, you yes, you don't realize how tiny the United States is compared to how enormous, enormous Africa, Africa is. is. Yes. Like, it, they're just not even scalable. Like, totally different. But Mercator doesn't do that. Mercator also puts Europe in the center of the map. Yes. Why? Because Mercator was European. Yes. Right. So, and because all of the colonial powers were based in Europe. Mm -hmm. So they show this map to, to CJ and they're like, Peters, this is the Peters projection. It has fidelity of size. It has fidelity, right, of location. And it shows that Europe is actually quite a bit at the top of the globe and to the right, sort of. And she she says, you know, wh I'm, what is that? And he's like, this is where you've been living this whole time, right? Like she, yeah, yeah. And she's, of, it freaks yeah, her she, out a little bit. Yes. Um. There, so there's that one. There's also in one of the episodes, uh, in one of these episodes, a wolves only highway. Yes. They want to build a highway for wolves to, and like <laughs> the natural question that gets asked about that is how do you keep other animals from using it? Right. So there's like, but, but what they're basically saying is wolves habitats are being destroyed by humans. Yes. Right by human civilization, and we need to create a space for wolves to be able to do natural wolf behaviors, which is to run up and down a long range of. of so, and, and, and I like Bartlett's response when CJ um, is trying to sell him on the wolves only highway, and he says, "I don't have a problem with the wolves only highway. My problem is advocates then for other animals. Okay, will say to us, well, why?" Don't Are you favorite animals wolves? have their own highway? <laughs> and he goes, and CJ, I don't know who pays for that, right? <laughs> right. Okay. But because these interest groups have access, right? And these are folks that would not normally be heard by the West Wing staffers, right? Exactly. Okay. And that's one of the great things about this episode. I mean, like Toby shows up. To At a protest. At a protest. And he's mad because they don't know how to do it right. So then <laughs> he gets upset because he's just like, he goes, I don't necessarily care what you're protesting about, but you guys are going about it all the wrong way. Right. right. And, a, and a Capitol Police officer encourages him to teach them how to 
Yes, right? How to protest properly. Because Toby shows up and he thinks he's just going to be able to sit there and read his newspaper, right? Right. But they're doing it so poorly, right? He gets mad about it once. He he gets gets mad about it in the classic Toby sense. Because Toby's got the corner on self-righteousness in the Bartlett West Wing, right? And cynicism. Yes, right? And, and, And again... Nia, the way you, you know, the beginning of that episode of uh, of um, uh, 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 crackpots, right? You know, <laughs> um, the chief of staff, Leo, is giving out the assignments. It and it, it so reminded me of being in a bureaucracy where you're being handed out assignments, and you know you're sitting around a table with some really smart folks, and everybody's cracking wise. But the boss picks on one, okay, to make an example of. And in that in that opening scene, Leo makes an example of of um, of, of um, Brad Whitford's character, Josh. Um, Josh, Josh, right? Because everybody else is cracking wise, and Leo's just letting it go. But when Josh cracks wise, Leo comes down on him hard, right? Well, he is his deputy. Yeah, and, and Josh was just like, hey, wait a minute here. Everybody. And, and, well, and but what's funny is they start to try to trade things. Hey, I've got a this. Do you want to trade yeah. for that? Right? Like, like they're not taking like, it in any way seriously. Seriously. And Leo's like, no, this is this is what transparent government is. It, yes. And then he says something about Margaret worked really hard, his secretary worked really hard on these assignments, and she's behind him and she shakes her head, no. no. Right? Like she's like, no, I didn't. But but it ends up being that that the staffers know. get an appreciation, okay, for these folks, right? That they would not normally, right? Right. And again, and it's and it and it is a deeper a deeper discussion of the responsiveness of government. Government yes. should listen to the narrow interest people because sometimes they have truly legitimate things to say, right? Sometimes they have things where where like like I said with the Mercator, where all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's not actually how the globe looks. Like yep. when when you look from space, that's not what it looks like. So, no, yeah, I mean, and and uh, so yeah, it, I think those are. And so I cheated because I put in two episodes for that. Sorry, I that's all right. But you got another episode. I so it was so hard for me to choose between there was this episode and there was. Um, the episode where uh, we get the retrospective of how they all came to be on the campaign. Yeah. yeah. Which is when it's in the shadow of two gunmen. That's that episode, which is um, uh, an assassination attempt. Yeah. Um, But I chose instead the stack bust stack house filibuster. Yes. Season two. Because I think people. Season two, episode 17. Yep. Thank you. Season two, episode 17. I think that people don't realize, I think that they don't realize what a filibuster is. Yes. Or how it can hold up the government. Yes. But also that negotiation between the branches is a really important. And it can can come down to something that on the surface, appears to be insignificant, but members of Congress, 
okay, no matter how controversial they are, how blowhard they are, et cetera, members of Congress, okay, do have issues that are near and dear to them. Right. Okay? So, so the crux of this issue is that, or the crux of this episode is that Josh um, negotiates a deal, bipartisan support um, in both houses. Looks yes. like it's going to go through $6 billion health care plan. He has spent months on this, folks. He has spent months, months on it, negotiating, yes. going back and forth, giving a little here, getting a little there, right? Doing what you need to do. But there's a senator he goes to see to get his support, Senator Stackhouse. And he says to Senator Stackhouse, you know, this is going to go through. And Stackhouse says, well, I'd really like you to add something in here about autism. And Josh is just over. Josh blows him off. Yeah. Josh blows him off and says, it's yeah, only, yeah, we'll get to it another time or basically. Yeah, yeah it, you know, Sackhouse only has one vote and I'm done negotiating. Okay. Right. I got a deal. Right. And Sackhouse says to him, okay, well then we'll see how that goes for you. He warns him. <laughs> yes. And Josh blows it off because he thinks he's got it. Yep. But he doesn't. And because what Stackhouse does is he filibusters. Yes. And for those listeners who don't understand the, the filibuster, in the United States Senate, to end debate on a potential bill on the floor of the Senate, in the Senate, you need 60 votes. Now, remember, there's 100 senators. So it is more than just a majority. You need to have a supermajority, right? And if you can't get 60 votes to end debate, it's known as a cloture vote, okay? Those in the minority, those who want to slow things down, can engage in what's known as a filibuster. And a filibuster is basically, you get on the floor of the Senate, and when you are recognized to speak, you continue to speak and speak and speak and speak. Because right. what's he doing now? He's reading the rules of uh, like some card game. I can't poker. What... Okay. Oh, was that what it was? The rules? Yeah, of it was poker, right? Okay. And then he's going to move on to a cookbook. Like he's just it, it, he can, as long as he's talking, they cannot take a vote to end debate. Okay. And in in Nia, why does Stackhouse not want a vote? on this bill. You remember why? Um, well, I know that they don't want, he doesn't want them to make the print deadline. He doesn't want them. He wanted money added for what kind of research? For autism research, right. That's for autism research, saying. because he has a. Autistic grandchild. Yes. Okay. And Donna figures it out. Yeah. Donna is smart. She looks at the pictures and she's like, wait, there's one grandchild that doesn't get mentioned. That's right. In the press releases, and that's because that's a child they're protecting because they have right. special needs. Yes. So, and so then they decide that they're gonna. Towards the end of the episode, they they decide that they're going to help him by calling senators to see if someone will go give him. Sorry, I get um, emotional. If somebody will go give him a break by asking him a question. Yes. 
sorry, and one of the senators goes in and says, I'd like, I'd like to ask you about autism. And then he says, my question comes in 24 parts. Perhaps you'd like to sit down and have a drink of water. And they give him an out. Right. But Seven also years. by sending him a message, the White House now understands, okay? And they will pull the bill and they'll, yeah, they'll renegotiate. Re yeah, they'll renegotiate, okay? And it's, it's, sorry, I get emotional because it's such a, um, you know, when you see that they see they've made a mistake. Yes. And they want to fix it, right? And they so, don't want to, they don't want to embarrass him. Right. They don't want to get into, get in his face. They want to go ahead and say, okay, Senator, we understand we screwed up. Okay. Um, and we're not going to make a big deal about this. Okay. Right. Okay. And but it, Bartlett has, during this episode, Bartlett has eaten dinner with Leo and he has a, creme de caramel at the end that has a lot of sugar in it, according to Leo. Because at one point he says to, uh, to CJ, we're grandfathers. We're, we came before and they'll be here after and don't mess with the grandchildren. And she's like, okay. So when she starts to call around for help, yes, he starts with the grandfathers. Yeah, she starts with the grandfathers. And the narrative, if you will, hook throughout that entire episode is CJ's writing a letter to her dad. Oh, that's okay? right. Because it's his birthday. It's his birthday, right? Um, and as we find out later in the show, okay, CJ's dad um, is uh, suffering from early onset Alzheimer's, which is even more difficult for her father because her father was, I believe, a math teacher, right? Uh -huh. And it's one of the connective, if you will, tissues throughout the entire episode is um, um, uh, in politics, okay? Um, the personal is... It, the, the personal is... real. It's is very real. important. It's very real. It's very important. And yeah. by the way, that's our segue to my first favorite episode. My favorite, uh, uh, my first favorite episode is entitled Mr. Willis from Ohio. It's from season one, episode six. Okay. And the episode starts with Toby and Mandy, uh, played by, I believe, Moore Kelly. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, they, uh, they're trying to convince um, members of Congress to approve an appropriations bill for the Commerce Department that would have a provision allowing for the census count to be based in part on statistics, statistical sampling. And one of the members of Congress they're trying to convince of this, okay, is um, uh, Mr. Willis um, from Ohio. And Mr. Willis um, is filling in, he was recently appointed to fill the seat of his recently deceased wife who had held that congressional district seat. And again, Mr. Willis, okay, is somebody who doesn't really know all that much about how Congress and the White House does things. He's a high school history teacher, okay? But he doesn't know how Washington, D.C. insiders 
do things. Right. And this is a connection to, for instance, your, you know, two favorite episodes, Nia. Okay, because once again, his being so naive forces not only members of Congress, but members of his own political party and the White House to explain things to him, right? Right, because he doesn't want to just vote because they tell him to vote. Vote a certain way. A certain way. He He wants wants to understand understand why. And part of that is he's honoring his wife and her legacy. Part of that is he's honoring his district, and he really believes that he should know why he's voting the way he's voting. Yes, okay. Um, Which is a good thing, right? It reminds you that people should not just pop in their head into your office and say, vote yes on the next bill that's coming up, and then wander away without telling you why. It's got to be more than just because the party says so. Right. It's got to be more than just the West, you know, the White House wants this, right? He wants to understand. But the other reason why I love this episode, and Nia, you and I have explored this throughout this podcast, it really illustrates the difficulty we have in 21st century America in trying to comply with the language of the Constitution that was written in 1787, right? The census requirement we've done previous podcast episodes about, right, is in some ways extremely simple. We count every American every 10 years, okay, and then we announce the results. But that becomes extremely difficult in a nation that is geographically spread out like the United States and now has over 330 of us. 330 million of us. Yeah, right? we have more than 330. Okay. And there are some just great dialogue in this episode. My favorite is the hilarious exchange between CJ and Sam about what the Constitution requires in regards to the census and then how she can explain it in her role as the press secretary. Okay, (laughs) and she comes to him and says, pretend like I know nothing about the census. And Sam goes, okay, so what do you know about the census? And she goes, Sam, I just told you. (laughs) Pretend like I don't know anything. And his response was, okay, you're a little late to the party, (laughs) but we got some learning to do, right? But it's an hilarious exchange because you're talking about two really smart people, but CJ's not necessarily a constitutional law expert, and Sam, who went to law school, okay, is just like, what do you mean you don't know anything about this? But again, that's part of the difficulty when we get into these silos of knowledge, right? And she needs words that mean something to regular people. That's right, because that's the stuff that's going to be reported by the press. Right that the regular folks are going to read in newspapers. Right. right? And people in the press who don't know the nuances. Yes. Are going to pick them up from her. That's why words matter. And that's why that job is so hard. Yes. Right. Because you have to, you have to not, you have to not condescend to people. Yes. 
but speak plainly enough that people understand what you mean. And you have to, that's a fine line to walk. Anybody who's ever taught a class, right? Augie is accused of this all the time of condescension when that's not what he means. No. He's just trying to speak as plainly and as clearly as possible in order for students to not have any question about what, how he's trying to answer the question. And there was a really good uh, part later on in the episode where Sam is explaining both sides of how to do the census, right? You know, the, the one approach, which is we can only report those, you know, who we've actually counted versus why we might use statistical sampling, which is there are a whole bunch of Americans who end up not getting counted for a lot of different reasons, right? And initially, CJ favors the first approach, but then Sam goes, but there are trade-offs. And the downside is without statistical sampling, there are a whole bunch of Americans who will never get counted. And of course, CJ then goes back, you know, goes over to the other side, which is what a lot of us do when we are exposed to complex questions. Yeah, complex questions, right? So I love that episode, right? And oh yeah, by the way, um, um, uh, um, uh, uh, the Bartlett administration does win the vote. Okay, and it's really cool at the end of the episode, they're all sitting around starting to play poker. Okay, but Toby won't participate, even though they think they got the vote, they're going to win the vote in Congress, because he wants to hear how Mr. Willis actually votes. Okay, thus the name of the episode. Um, um, because when uh, the um, um, the clerk in the House uh, is doing the vote. They will go ahead and say, you know, you know, Ms. Rogers from North Carolina, Mr. Ogenbaugh from Pennsylvania, right, Mr. Willis from Ohio, right? Um, and 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 again, just showing Americans how votes take place because most Americans don't tune into the C-SPAN, okay, um, or or go to uh, the, you know, either house's uh, chambers for votes, right? I mean, we, we, we just don't have time for that. No. Yeah. And can I just say there's a secondary story in that, in that episode, episode where they all go to a bar after <laughs> work. <Yes>. And, um, <laughs> and so uh, do they, uh, Charlie and the president's youngest daughter, are, are starting to date at that point. Yes. So they all go to a bar and she goes up to the bar to get the next round of drinks for the table. And some guy hits on her. Yes. And then Charlie steps in and <laughs> and <clears throat> it, it turns into a, it's going to be a fight. Yeah, it escalates. And then Josh says, oh, uh, your day's about to get really bad to the to the other guy who has been um saying hitting. yeah hitting nasty yeah, hitting. things to Charlie and hitting on Zoe. Yes. And then all of a sudden, kaboom, the door flies open and like six Secret Service agents <laughs> come in <laughs> and drag him and his friends off. <laughs> and and you're reminded that Zoe as a young woman 
as because she's the daughter of the president because she's living at home actually i think at that point she might be living in georgetown she might actually be at university already but she's um she has secret service detail yeah she yeah she has secret service protection so what's great about you know that that subplot is that you know president bartlett is concerned that charlie's working too hard because um uh, the, the the backstory to charlie's character is um, Charlie's mom uh, was uh, uh, a DC police officer who was killed in the line of duty. So Charlie a- ends up taking care of his younger sister. Well, also, you know, working you know, at the White House. We're working at the White House, right? And uh, the, the president is concerned that Charlie's um, uh, working too hard. So uh, Bartlett, the president, has Josh and Sam take Charlie out for drinks. And it's just going to be the guys, right? But then Zoe finds out, and Sam, uh, not Sam, uh, um, uh, uh, Leo's daughter, who's got a crush on uh, Sam, okay, um, and CJ, they also want to go out, right. right? Okay. So the six of them go out, right? And at one point, as you described it, Zoe goes to the bar to order another round of drinks, which, by the way, she should not be able to because she's not of age, right? right. But, but nevertheless, okay, she's at the bar. <laughs> right? And then Secret Service comes in, and then afterwards, okay, <laughs> they go back to the West Wing, and <laughs> the women, okay, think that. Josh and Sam are going to get into trouble, and they don't, <laughs> okay? But Charlie was just like, what are you guys talking about? Okay, you guys wouldn't have been able to go ahead and break up that fight, <laughs> okay? Because, you know, you guys are college-educated, law school-educated. You haven't been in a fight like all your lives. I, on the other hand, have <laughs> grown up on the mean streets of D.C., right? But it's it's an hilarious subplot. It, it, it is, and, and that's the thing about the first couple of years of the West Wing. There's always a subplot. There's yeah, there's always, always the main subplot. Thing, yeah, and, and there's it, some lower level thing, and sometimes it comes back into being another episode, and sometimes yeah. it just doesn't. Like that relationship is established, but there are other episodes where the subplot is just a one episode thing, and it drifts away, and yeah. you never. Yeah, yeah, and in and, and, and rewards I mean, in the first episode, we see Sam and he is as he wakes up, he is waking up in bed with a woman who a high price call girl to be right, turns yes. out to be a call girl. Yes. And she switches um pagers, pagers with him accidentally. Yeah. And, yeah. And then uh, it's a whole subplot that becomes a longer thing. But you have another episode that you like. Uh, yes, and well, uh, no, we like all these. Let's be yeah, clear. but 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 another one of my favorite episodes, and and and, and guys, um, you know, folks, I'm just going to go ahead and apologize. Uh, this is an this episode is a policy geeks, okay, heaven, okay, because it is meaty, weighty. There's a lot of meat on this bone, right? Uh, the episode is mandatory minimums, and it also comes from season one. It's episode twenty. And the episode is about two policy issues that continue to bedevil, plague the United States in the last 30 years. One, 
how to regulate soft money contributions for federal elections, and then two, mandatory minimum drug sentences for violating federal drug laws, right? So I'm going to focus on the soft money first. So this episode occurred before the Supreme Court's ruling in one of uh, Nia's least favorite Supreme Court rulings of probably the last 15 to 20 years. Yeah, you're going to say it, but I'm going to make the sound. Yes, and that is the Supreme Court's ruling in Citizens United versus the Federal Election Commission 2010. <laughs> this is the ruling where the Supreme Court, in a five to four vote, held that the federal government could not regulate soft money campaign contributions made by corporations, trade unions, professional associations, et cetera. Right, because their argument is that money is speech. Money is speech. Now, this is an issue. Again, boom. Okay. This is, was not a new issue when the Supreme Court tackled it in 2010. This was Clearly a, not if it was brought up in 1999, right? Like Yes, right? This was a significant issue throughout the 1990s, okay? Um, and the if you will, the, the focus of the debate was at the Federal Election Commission. The Federal Election Commission is an independent regulatory commission, meaning that its members, there's, there's five commissioners, and no single president can nominate a majority of the members, right? Right. Okay. And they're not so, supposed to be influenced politically, are they? That's right. They're supposed to be independent regulatory commissions. Bartlett is has an opportunity to appoint two members to the five member commission, right? And and he thinks that one of the remaining three can be flipped so that the FC, FEC actually regulates soft money contributions, right? And there's a great there's a great scene in this episode where one of the three remaining members is brought to the West Wing um, to be influenced, right? And he comes into the Oval Office and he's obviously overwhelmed. He's never been, you know, to the Oval Office before, right? And he asks for a drink of water. And while he's waiting for the drink of water, Leo then invites him into the chief of staff's office. And standing outside the chief of staff's office was a uniformed Marine Corps member, right? So the guy is now, okay, he's parched, okay, his hands are clammy, and now he sees, you know, a guy from the Marine Corps with a rifle, right? And then Leo gives him the hard sell. You know, you are one of us, right? You know, we know you are, because when you were much younger, you wrote about how you were not entirely convinced that soft money contributions should be protected by the First Amendment, right? But I love that entire, if you will, discussion, because the episode goes into, okay, um, how you know, since the late 1960s, early 1970s, corporations, trade, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, unions, labor unions, professional associations, all have created political action committees 
to raise a whole bunch of money. Right. And then they spend it on elections, right? Right. And and it's they largely un- yeah. And it's largely unregulated, but both sides do it. And that's like one of the arguments that was being discussed in the Bartlett administration. If we do this, don't we hurt our party along with hurting the opposition party, right? right? So there's that. The other policy issue discussed, the aforementioned named of the episode, is mandatory minimums, right? Man- mandatory minimum drug census. Drug sentences arose in the 1980s as an issue during the Reagan administration's war on drugs, right? Republicans wanted stiff drug sentences to reduce both the supply and demand for narcotics in the United States. And it was a bipartisan issue because Democrats also okay, wanted greater equality of drug sentences across the federal courts. And it was one of those rare moments where you saw bipartisan agreement that drug sentences needed to become equal and at a high level. Because for Democrats, it should not matter where you got arrested and convicted, in what federal court. Okay? And for Republicans, they wanted to take discretion out of the hands of federal judges because they were tired of seeing federal judges give really, okay, small sentences to like drug kingpins, right? So you get disagreement. The only problem is, and and by the way, public opinion polls were uniformly in support, okay? And it wasn't just white suburban voters, right? You're talking about, okay, urban, you know, voters of color who wanted this because many- Because their neighborhoods were being destroyed by drugs. Yeah, just by destroyed by drugs, right? So it had rural and urban support, okay, white in in, in multiracial support. Yes, right. So the compromise was that the United States Sentencing Commission, which was declared constitutional by the Supreme Court in 1989, okay, would raise mandatory minimums for drug crimes. The problem that quickly arose, though, Neo, was what? Uh, isn't this where crack cocaine gets more prison time than powder cocaine? That's right. And thus splits out along racial lines and along urban versus suburban lines because crack cocaine was what persons of color in inner cities did. And, yes. And powder cocaine was what, you know, white kids from the burbs did. That's right. And okay. they were getting lower sentences. So then you start to see these huge huge disparities. Yeah, huge disparities, right? And one of the reasons why I liked the West Wing uh, normally, um, but particularly with this episode, Nia, was the balanced manner in which they explained how difficult it was to get agreement on intractable public policy problems, right? Right. Many of the solutions that are attempted to address those problems cause unattended consequences, right? Right. 
So, you know, in regards to mandatory minimums, you're talking about racism within the federal criminal justice system. And in regards to soft money contributions, okay, does it or does it not violate the First Amendment's freedom of speech? Right. And the thing is, without soft money, you don't get Barack Obama's $5 contribution Boom. thing in his in his running when he ran that's where he got a lot of the money that's was right from small donors thousands and that well millions of small donors as opposed to where some people run and they get one or two really big donors that's right and many right it, how do you and with, with why do you say money? one is better than the other I mean, Barack Obama really benefited from soft money because many political action committees could go ahead and run ads criticizing his primary opponent, which was then um, Senator Hillary Clinton. And then in the general election, criticize his opponent, um, uh, John McCain. And the ads were not coordinated with Barack Obama's campaign. Right. So Barack Obama benefited from soft money in a way that we probably had not seen before, right? But that's a, you know, and in, in, in again, you can hate soft money contributions, but understand that it usually ends up benefiting candidates of both political parties. Exactly. Which- which is why now both political parties don't want to get rid of soft money contributions. And right? we're also, and you're also, we're talking about the federal level. Yes. But at the state and right. local level, <laughs> that soft money is how people who don't have their own personal fortune yes. become city councilors or state mayors legislators, or yeah, state yes. Legislators, you know, governors. That's how they do that at the state and local level is because almost nobody who's running at the state and local level is a gazillionaire. Yes. And they don't have a huge amount of money and they don't have enough of a national profile to attract large donations from in, in, in the, uh, generous donors. One of the reasons why I, I, I would hope that listeners do watch this episode is that it actually punctuates one of the false narratives about mandatory minimums that you know it was only a republican party idea right in the 1980s okay voters of you know all races urban versus rural both the republicans and the democrats okay wanted mandatory minimums why they wanted them for different reasons but you had bipartisan agreement that we had to take discretion out of the hands of federal judges, okay, and establish, if you will, what were the mandatory minimums for different reasons. You know, the Republicans wanted to go ahead and, you know, eliminate the supply and demand. And for Democrats, they wanted greater equality among the sensing, right? They didn't yeah, want to. And there's problems with mandatory minimums because. They don't yes. always take into account the nuance of individual cases. cases. This okay. is not a solution to that necessarily, but it is a good it is a good reminder from the West Wing of how often both either side could get on board if they would just talk about how to get on board. Board, yes. With something together. 
Yeah. Um, before we end this episode, and I know we're we're running close to time, but I want to mention, can I do a one special mention? Mm-hmm. That I think um, one of the things that West Wing did as a show was it tackled things that were hard or complicated or nuanced. And on almost all of those issues, you get more than one viewpoint. Um, I know that people thought of it as a Democrat show. No, I, and yeah. I'm not I, sure that that's accurate. There were a lot of things and there were a lot of characters that brought in different um, uh, points of view. But I do want to mention, it's one of the few shows that I know of that directly responded to 9-11. Yeah, yeah. The episode Isaac and Ishmael, which is a lockdown of the White House. A group of presidential scholars are locked down when they visit the White House. The White House goes into lockdown because there's a threat and they end up in the cafeteria. And there is a long discussion about terrorism and what terrorism means and what is it. That, um, you know, a lot of shows didn't want to touch not yes. They didn't yep. want to bring it up. They didn't want to mention it. They wanted to just go on as if it had not happened because it's a hard thing to talk about. And West Wing and Aaron Sorkin specifically said, nope, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk yeah. about it because it's it's a life-altering event. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and, and, and again, even if you, even if your uh, listeners, if your own uh, political leanings are to the right, or you know you're affiliated with the Republican Party. I mean they've had, they had they did episodes um, uh, about the Second Amendment. Well, and Ainsley Hayes is a great character. Character, okay, and um, and, and, and she there was an episode um, when she f- first appears on the show. She she uh, plays somebody who is. She comes to the attention of the Bartlett administration because she goes on a Sunday morning Sam, um, news Sam's show. Sam's getting his uh, <laughs> butt kicked. By, uh, thank you. That's not what they say in the show, but yeah, Sam's getting his butt kicked by a girl. Yeah. Okay, she, yeah. Okay. He walks his dog. I mean, yeah. she has an answer for everything. And and in uh, the Bartlett administration was just like you know, hey, you know, we should hire her. We should hire her because you know one, she's smart, and two, she would keep us honest, right? right. You know, and, and so she gets onto the show, and they they're having a discussion about the Second Amendment, and she said something that always resonated with me, which was, you know, we can have a disagreement about the meaning of the Second Amendment, but you know, for many people who own guns. The reason why they don't like the Bartlett administration stance on the Second Amendment is you don't like the people who like guns, right? Right. And, and that always resonated with me because that was not something that you saw at that time in mainstream media, right? Which is, you know, just because somebody likes to own guns doesn't, doesn't make, make them, them a, a bad person, bad person right? Um, and, and you saw that in a number of episodes where you were just kind of sort of like, yeah, you know, that's a good point. Just because they think differently than you doesn't necessarily make them a bad person. Okay. Um, it may reflect, you know, there was an entire episode about, uh, reparations for African-Americans who are descendants of slaves. 
right? And they, they did a great job with it in terms of explaining why there are folks who want reparations for descendants of slaves, okay, and why it might be difficult to achieve in terms of public policy, right? Um, and, you know, and again, those are, you know, the, you know, the, the response to the 9-11 attacks, right? Um, they have easily two or three episodes about picking people to serve on the Supreme Court, right? They have a great episode about trade. Yeah, I almost picked those episodes. They have a great episode about trade where Donna starts off by saying to Josh, Mexico called and they'd like, (laughs) which is funny because- Or tax breaks. I mean, there was one episode where Josh goes ahead and is trying to explain um, uh, changes to the tax code. And, And Donna says, I want my money back. And Josh goes, but we don't trust how you will spend your money. Right. <laughs> okay. But that's one of the criticisms of the federal government's tax code, which is you're taking money out of Americans' pockets. And in, fe- in, in, in one of the ways that can be interpreted is the government doesn't trust what you would do with that money. Exactly. Right? Okay. The government believes that it knows better than you. You do, right? Okay. Right. So there's, we would, I think our overall, um, sort of recommendation is watch all of it. Yes. Okay. Some of it has not aged as well. Well, I mean, and, and there Even are some we episodes. We are delighted. We clearly love West Wing. Some yeah. of it has not aged as well as. as yeah, there um, are some episodes that have a, a soap opera esque quality to it. Right. And you just have to roll that off. Yeah. But I mean, particularly the first two seasons. Oh, good Lord. Right. Okay. They're excellent. Um, yes. Uh, highly recommend it. Um, so. So thanks, Augie. Uh, thank so you. that's our first favorite episode, and yes. there will be more to come. Yes. All right. Um, and we hope you enjoyed it. Um, and if you have recommendations for other kinds of uh, favorite episodes, um, feel free to email us. Um, also, also feel free to email us about next summer's theme. Yes. If you because we haven't picked one yet. If you yes. there's a thing you think you you'd like to hear more about. Yes. So wonderful. All right. Thank goodbye. you. Yep. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.